Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram where I'm archiving my collection of Beatles books with the account at Books Beatles. My guest today is Jem Roberts, an author, historian, editor and comedian. He brings us Fab Falls, the first ever celebration of the Beatles comedy and the Ruttles history. A full, detailed and hilarious story of how the Beatles laugh their way to the top via their films, cartoons and even pantomimes. Jim Roberts, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I am fantastic, Joe. Thank you all for asking me. Getting warmed up, as I say, warmed up with the idea of talking about Fab Fools after 10 years rather than just living it. We'll start off in an obvious place, which is going to be the, the inspiration behind the book, Fab Falls, The Beatles and Comedy. Was it an area that you felt was misunderstood in kind of Beatles and comedy folklore or just c- completely underappreciated? There was very little appreciation from the comedy side of things, which was really what I was concerned with. But more to the point, it was just a revelation looking at all the Beatle books on my shelves and realising there was this absolute gap that nobody, some people had paid a little bit of lip service to over the years. Uh, You know, you might get the odd mention of Spike Milligan or what George Martin was up to before he met the Beatles and everything. But um, nobody had brought these two things together. I I mean, I don't want to go into too much boring detail about my career, but it's been, this is an idea I had so early on and I've been fighting this battle for years and years. I started off, my first book was the official, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, celebration. And that was a gigantic story. That was 50 years of comedy. My first ever book, you know, it was just out of the blue and it was nearly killed me, but I covered 50 years and it goes all over the place. Monty Python, the goodies, you know, it really kind of covered a huge expanse. And then Blackadder was always my main obsession. So I started doing the Blackadder book and I've worked out since. It must have been round about then that um, it suddenly dawned on me that really my greatest passion has always been the Beatles, or at least since I was a teenager, has been the Beatles. They kind of take the place of religion in my life as an atheist. It's the closest I can get to uh, whatever, you know, Christians and so forth must feel. It's that kind of spiritual feeling. It, uh, you know, it, it's filled my life for, as I say, I have shelves and shelves of shelves of Beatle books. I have read them all. And I reached a stage where I suddenly thought, I've had enough. I can't do anymore. I kind of, I was, we were reaching the sort of the caretaker of Abbey Road stage of books. Not to do those things down, you know, they actually met the Beatles, which is more than I can say I have. But I thought, right, unless one of the two men themselves remaining is going to bring out a book that is more than just postcards, even though I've got that one as well, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> unless they were going to bring out another book, it's just Lewis and or nothing really Mm. just no offense to anyone else especially on this podcast for god's sake i just made a lot of enemies but this is just me as a consumer you know writing my own books one of the main things actually is that writing a book as all the people who listen to this will appreciate it takes over your life and it has to be a passion and i was very passionate about doing i'm sorry having a clue very passionate about hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and blackadder and everything i've done fry and laurie one of the greatest my greatest heroes you know and you, they, you have to be because otherwise you go mad i don't understand how people write you know the unofficial biography of i know it's a job and we've all got to work but to wake up every morning and not be dealing with your own passion seems insane. And obviously the Beatles was my greatest passion alongside comedy and bam, there they go. And I just saw the whole Beatles story, which is, we all know very well is the greatest story ever told. I saw the entire Beatles story through a kind of red nose tinted filter and all this kind of the family trees and the connections all coming alive through the comedy of the Beatles and I had all these books and it just hadn't been done. Little bits and pieces. You know, you get books about the Beatles movies. There's that lovely book I've got here on the Beatles cartoon series, which was very informative. Um, So people, you know, and the Yellow Submarine. Ah, God, what was the guy's name? Uh, Hieronymus Bosch? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Robert (laughs) Robert Hieronymus, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
you had, there were all these bits that some people had done, but nobody brought it all together. And there was so much. And I'm used to fitting a lot of stuff into a book by now. Um, so I've been fighting that fight. And originally, it was called The Joker Laughs. That's what I wanted it to be called uh, when I sort of had that, you know, moment of revelation. And The Joker Laughs was offered to every likely publisher from, that must have been about 2010 that I suddenly okay. thought, damn, Joker Laughs, I've got it. that's going to be my magnum opus at some point. Um, and yeah, all the usual music publishers, all the best Beatles publishers. I thought, you know, the way that it covered so much comedy, Monty Python and the Ruttles. And that was the other thing, obviously, the flip side of telling the story, the Ruttles, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. But that's another thing. Virgin Snow, it's so rare and beautiful to find Virgin Snow. As I'm, I'm a comedy historian is what I do. This is a comedy book about the Beatles. Um, and yeah, the, the Ruttles story was just there, you know, and it needed to be told. And yeah, so I was just being very passionate about that for a very long time and turned down many, many times over. And it reached the point, to be honest, it's very difficult making a living as an author. And I've been doing nothing but, you know, self-employed for a decade or more. And I just thought, sod it, last spin of the wheel. I'm just going to give up a year. So in 2019, I basically earned almost no money. Okay. I just sat at home and I worked on fab fools throughout a very very long and difficult year and now here it is and it's all been sort of put together uh with this lovely company in cardiff candy jar well we're glad that that both you and they have combined forces to let mm. this book unleash this book on on the, on the world um i want to start really sort of where you start elements where you start in in the book uh about the beatles as a group and their personalities and their own kind of shared sense of humour. We know mm. about this, this idea of the four-headed monster uh, and it, it comes across, I think, really beautifully in a lot of those early interviews and press conferences it, where they're, they're unlike anything anyone had ever seen before from mm. a, uh, you know, a comedic aspect. You know, Elvis and Cliff and the people would sit down and they would give jovial, straight answers to some quite uninspiring questions mm. how, how important do you think their their shared sense of humor was to them functioning as a group in those early days well I really think that's largely what drove the manic passion that I had to get make this book a reality for so long because it's not too highfalutin to claim that their humor was their x factor they were the greatest musicians of their generation. I personally have no doubt about that. And, you know, uh, girls and boys loved them in their own, you know, personalities, their own lovely faces and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and there was a lot of mania ar around it. But the X factor, for me, the real heart of what made them what they were was their humour. And that's why the realisation that it only ever been sort of occasionally mentioned here and there just seems so insane. It's just been sort of exercising me ever since. And the more you look into it, the more comic material you find. I mean, that's sort of central to what they're doing, doing at the moment with the Let It Be rejig, isn't it? They're kind of finding all the jokes, all the humour that uh, was supposedly left out. Well, it wasn't supposedly, it's all there. We've, we've heard it if we're obsessed enough. Mm. And I've got some nice juicy chunks in the book, which... Uh, mm. Some things that particularly made me laugh. So it's just there all the way through. And they are comedians all the time that they are musicians. I don't want to make this podcast into just a podcast about the Beatles films, but we must discuss them because that's a physical manifestation of of their humour and of humour yeah. that, that was kind of imposed on them. So obviously the, the first two films uh, that they make, Help uh, and A Hard Day's Night, they're both essentially comedies, aren't they? They, you know, they oh, didn't, yeah. they didn't go for a, a, any other angle there. Hard Day's Night now in in twenty twenty, it, it's generally seen as as more successful. It, it seemed mm. to have stood up a little bit better than Help, despite obviously being made uh, a year earlier. I think mm. to modernise Hard Day's Night it is less problematic, shall we say, in in certain areas than than, the word, uh, than Help. The there, there it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Two kind of questions around this. Uh, do you think Hard Day's Night, as written, obviously, by Alan Owen, was 
an accurate representation of their kind of shared sense of humour. Well, it was certainly drawn from, you know, a few weekends of going round with them on tour. So that's really what it was based on. But they wouldn't be, they wouldn't have performed it if it didn't ring true. And in fact, they picked up as much from Alan Owen and made it their own as he was sort of writing down what they said is a bizarre mesh between the two of them. Honestly, I think the reason that Hard Day's Night will always be seen as the best Beatles film is because it was Alan Owen. It was one writer with a clear vision who got it all together and everything else they ever tried to do in, in film terms was just a mess of mm. too many cooks, basically. And that all the different kind of dream films that never got made that we hear about from Tolkien to uh, obviously up against it, they're all just sort of a, a, a mess, a kind of authorial mess, whereas Alan Owen was just capturing that moment, which he was particularly good at. And uh, he sort of... Yeah, he, he gave us that forever, really. Do you think Help gets a bad rap? Do you, do you think there's elements of, of the comedy in Help that works? I mean, obviously, visually, it's much more resting. Obviously, it's in colour, but outside of that... Some it of looks the... so gorgeous as well. It does, it does look it's great. It's not yeah. just in colour. It's, I mean, I think it's what I'm right in saying. Every single shot was treated by uh, Lester and his team like a, a, a painting so it's you could pause the dvd at any point and it's just going to be a spectacular sight mm. um it's uh, the main shame with that is just mark bame who came up with the original plot bringing in the whole sort of racial element really it's it's uncanny the way that it kind of uh, presages george's whole uh, destiny in life uh, a few years earlier and it's sort of really unpleasantly taking the piss out of it before he <laughs> he must have thought hang on they're not all kind of murdering it uh, I mean it is it, I mean uh, and they're all sort of blacked up white actors as well and uh, you, you have to use phrases like of its time and uh, it's it's a, that's a great annoyance to ever have to use that phrase mm. um, but this I mean when it is gorgeous it is priceless Mm. You think of just the whole, everything about them going in the house. And oh, yeah. It's, and it's only the plot that, that ruins everything, really. <laughs> I think, uh, for me, just as a side, it's Roy Kinnear's performance mm. for me. I think, I think I mean, I, I, I always liked Roy Kinnear as an actor. Um, and uh, I think his little double act with, with Spinetti, uh, who obviously we meet again a few times over <laughs> the years, is uh, uh, strong. But yeah, interestingly, where... There's hardly any elements of Hard Day's Night that seem to date at all. You know, the, even the scene, George's scene, where he goes in and he's, mm. and he's, he's having that kind of that mock kind of interview yeah. with the clothing company. A, a lot of that rings true now, really. Whereas it, it, I think, you know, I could think about that for hours, Gem. I really could. <laughs> it's a great comedy. That's one of the great comedy sketches, really, the George. Right. Everybody prepared for that eventuality. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, up against it. Uh, which mm. was a screenplay that was written by Joe Orton, who yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if he's that well thought of today, you know, globally, but of the time, he was certainly a, a kind of an enfant terrible of the English-British theatre, wasn't he? Um, I, think he's, I think he's well thought of, but he's right. not widely thought of. Okay. They haven't sort of adapted any of his uh, plays to films or anything recently. No. But uh, he is, I think he, 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 you know, he is a great figure of 20th century theatre, so he's kind of got that place on the pedestal, no matter what filth he happened to peddle at the time, you know. Filth is quite an appropriate word for the question, really, because the script that he prepares for <laughs> the Beatles is, is, is light years away from Help, Hard Day's Night, let alone, mm. you know, Catch Us If You Can and Summer Holiday and the like. Um, <laughs> it, it, it shows the Beatles, you know, um, sexing and drugging and being violent, etc., etc. Do you think this was something that would ever have been filmed by the Beatles? Um, did it ever get close to, to even, you know, was there any, any hint that it might have actually ever happened? Well, there were two problems, really, that absolutely stopped it in its tracks. Um, but, I mean, I say in the book that I personally, you know, I'm very glad that we didn't end up with a watered down yeah. up against it. 
although in some ways we do because there's so many simil similarities with Yellow Submarine that sort of starts out in the town where they were born and they go off on this insane adventure and fight things there are battles except in that case it's all about you know misogyny and gender battles and god knows what else rather than blue meanies so the sort of the feminists in Up Against It become the blue meanies so it's all really dodgy stuff <laughs> um, no matter how you slice it and even a watered down version would have just been it, you know there, I think there were times when Be Beatlemania could have just crushed them and if they made that kind of misstep it was a very wise decision to throw it in the bin mm. um, because it, it could have really it, you know compared to Paul saying that Magical Mystery Tour wasn't too bad the day after it went out up against it would have it could have ruined them it could have ended the beatles in 1968 or whatever it would have been well, yeah. uh, that yeah. bad really i mean i was always tempted to put trigger warnings in for some of the extracts i included mm. in the book mm. but um i mean i i don't wish to you know uh, authorial lord it too much but i was very proud to go up to the university of leicester to to handle the original scripts that he thumped out on his typewriter um because i've been obsessed with up against it since the Radio 3 version, which I'm sure most people will have, will have heard, which I've listened to many times over the years. I think I've, it's up on YouTube mm. on my channel uh, I, with all sort of different visuals and stuff. I've obsessed I've been with it. And it's weird to compare them and find out just how massively developed that radio version was. It was hugely rewritten. They sort of take a bit here and a bit there and the odd funny line from Joe Orton. But in its full stark horror, the, the way it was presented to Brian Epstein, which I'd never read before, Okay. Because actually, I started saying something about ten minutes ago, and I hadn't got round to it. I think that what really stopped it in its tracks and stopped it being watered down and coming out in some form was two deaths in one summer, very close together. Strange, two gay stars of swinging sixties London gone. Mm. And it's weird that more isn't made of it. Really, the mm. summer of love, nineteen sixty-seven, and within weeks of each other, you have. Joe Orton being murdered by his lover, who then kills himself in their little bed sit in one corner of London. And then a taxi ride away, a few weeks later, Brian Epstein takes a pill too many. Mm. And the strange, miserable synchronicity between these things. So up against it just didn't matter. Mm. You know, at that, by the, that point in, in the summer of 1967, it just, there wasn't even anyone to return it to. So that's what killed it. Yeah, it was very much rounded out for even that weird Radio 3 version. It, it's, quite a, it's quite a strange version because it was about 97, wasn't it? And they throw yeah. in these like references to Tony Blair and Channel 5 yeah, and stuff. Yeah, so much of, uh, there's so many great lines. Oh, yeah, because that was what the other thing I was going to say. It did get picked up after those deaths. Right. And it was going to be made into a vehicle for Mick Jagger and Ian McKellen. And so the four parts were narrowed down to two. And that's really what we get. That script was then published in the 70s. So that's been available for years. Mm. And that was then further adapted into the radio version. And I just thought that was up against it, the radio version. It's incredible to peel back the layers and see what horror uh, really sort of lurks within it all. But uh, even Joe Orton himself, and he lived, the whole point is he just lived to shock. He thought, what? he didn't really want to do a Beatles film. He was just absolutely wowed. And he thought, okay, well, I'll mash all this stuff together and see what I can get away with. Mm. And even he admitted after being turned down, he called, you know, Brian Epstein, all kinds of names and stuff. But even he then admitted, to be honest, I do have them all sexually uh, attacking this woman. And, uh, you know, I can't really blame them, but it would have been marvelous. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, moving on far to the final of the, the Beatles uh, films that we can discuss really is the magical mystery tour. Mm. You suggest in the book, I, I think quite adeptly that some gags would have improved the film. No end. Um, there's a, a couple of questions around magical mystery tour. Why do you think they shied away from comedy when they made this? They obviously they've made two films and had success commercially, certainly going for a real comedic angle. Would you think that was a conscious decision to just go pure kind of surreal with it? And the second question is something that I've always wanted to ask someone that has a, a fine knowledge of comedy is I, I always look at Magical Mystery Tour and I think, you know, this is pre-Python and some of it, this, I mean, I'm not a huge Python expert, but 
mm. I know my way around. Are there are there signs and tropes in this comedic tropes in Magic Mystery Tour that you would later see in, in things like Python? Oh, absolutely, yes. Right. And I mean, I, I'd have to disagree, actually, the first point. I think that they were very deliberately trying to make a comedy. Okay. At this time, it was an improvised comedy and they were totally in charge, or Paul was totally in charge. And the other ones just didn't know what the hell they were doing, what it was about. I mean, John said himself, he said, what, Paul's telling me to write and direct this scene and I've got no interest in doing this. What am I doing? What am I? So he gets this Nat Jackley, who is, you know, to him, a famous comedian from the musical days. So again, it was all comedy, but it improvised comedy and right. not terribly funny improvised comedy. <laughs> but apart from obviously the songs, and even the songs are full of laughs, like mucking around with a big white cello and kicking a football around. It's all mugging to the camera. It's all sort of light entertainment, at least, mm. uh, if not <laughs> balls out comedy. Um, but yeah, I mean, Maybe it's, it's uh, you know, I love them. I'm, maybe it's, it's being too critical of the Beatles, but fact of the matter is it was like their audio stuff as well, the, the flexi disc stuff, where mm. they're just going off on this stream of consciousness and seeing what's there. It's improvised comedy. It's incredible. You hear Paul on those things, on those recordings, coaching these guys along and they're playing in the sound effects and saying, what's this? And it's, it's whose line is it anyway? Back in 1965, six, seven, you know. And that's exactly really what they were doing with Magical Mystery Tour, but they were doing it on a bus with film cameras and everything. And they were just doing it slightly ineptly. And when they were finally turning over, they thought, where are our funny lines? Nobody's written us any funny lines. It's the old line about, it's the old um, uh, Morecambe and Wise Eddie Braben line, isn't it? We don't just make this stuff up, you know. <laughs> and they thought they could. And there are some wonderful bits in there. But, you know, the wizards are just sort of camp, which was an easy route to getting a laugh in the, in the 1960s. It's, yeah. and I was thinking this, actually, unless my DVD of Magical Mystery Toys is some kind of bad edit, they miss out, like, the, one of the main punchlines of the whole film in the right. actual thing. They're building up to this joke. And I didn't notice this until I was looking through the Beatles anthology book. And they reproduced an actual filming script of Magical Mystery Tour. And it's after the Bonzo Dog Doodah band bit, and all the guys have gone into the tent and they're watching the stripper. Mm. It cut to all the women on the coach staring at them in disapproval, just suddenly there. Right. It's all just in the Beatles anthology book in this little script bit. It's like a joke, which I'm guessing Paul had written. He wrote a punchline to the stripper thing where all the women are there, have been watching them all the way along when they're going, eh, 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 eh. and that's a joke. That's an yeah. actual joke with a punchline. And that's just not there. They just cut to your mother should know. And they're coming down the steps. And it's just like, shit, what happened to the actual point of, well, the point was to have Viv Stanchel, you know, dancing around a half-naked woman, obviously. But besides that, <laughs> how could you miss out the punchline? It's part of that ineptitude. And I'm one of those people who thinks, where is really all the other footage from Magical Mystery Tour? Because I would very happily, I mean, I'd look forward to whatever Peter Jackson's doing with Let It Be with the Get Back thing, but I would very happily see an hour-long Magical Mystery Tour with every single shot, you know, upgraded and everything, and bringing back in the... Um, who was it? Here we go around the Mulberry Bush. Going to be in it. Oh, and... uh, Spencer Davis. Oh, no, uh, Traffic, wasn't it? It was Traffic. Yeah. And yeah. the whole I'm going in a field bit with Ivor, you know, what he should have had his song. There's an hour. There's mm. a much better hour. And I wouldn't even care, even if they couldn't find the footage and CG'd it up just to link <laughs> it, just to link it all up. There's yeah. a far more cogent hour magical mystery tour, which would be twice as good as the one we've got, I think. It was very rushed. It certainly was. Any idea, again, I've no idea if you have any insight or thoughts on this, any idea why John, throughout Magical Mystery Tour, speaks in a very harsh Yorkshire ac accent? It's just there, isn't it? You know? Is it, your, I, I think it, Is was, it Yorkshire? Or? No, that's what I was going to say. I think it was a generic northern accent. Right, OK. It was the idea that, you know, you're going off to Blackpool and it's kind of a Lancashire oh, of course, yeah. thing, isn't it? It's, you yeah. know, it's their, it's their kind of... You go a bit further than Liverpool, and it's all kind of like that, isn't it? Right, okay. It's just fascinating me. That and George's large blue coat that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. It's just there the whole time, isn't it? I don't know. Um, you mentioned them uh, a few minutes ago, the Pythons. I think the relationship between the Beatles and the Pythons is, is a fascinating one. You know, they are two groups from the 60s that 
people were obsessed with coming back together again for the rest of the time that, that they were around. Um, mm. Obviously, obviously the Pythons managed it on and off throughout that time. Uh, the Beatles, as we know, mm. never, never did. Um, do you think that they saw elements of each other when, when the Pythons came along, obviously the friendships were formed, particularly with George, but I, yeah. I think, I think with the other Beatles as well, do you think they saw elements of each other when they met and when they kind of studied each other's work? And what do you think it was it about George that attracted him the most to people like obviously Eric and, and Palin in particular? Well, this was the dichotomy of George in that he was definitely the biggest comedy geek right. of them all. And at the same time, he took his faith so absolutely seriously to the point of, you know, being spoofed left, right and centre for it at the time, let alone since. Um, I mean, it's the thing about Python is Python's roots are in, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, which was uh, in my first book. And they were really what the Beatles were to music. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, was to comedy because they were young. Bill Oddie, John Cleese, uh, Tim Brooke Taylor, Graham Garden, they were all the young generation writing their own material and the crowds were absolutely mad for these live shows they used to do. And that was sort of what gave birth eventually to Monty Python through various other shows. So it had been there a lot longer than the sort of George's idea that he you know, stated many times that he thought the soul of the Beatles went into Monty Python. I'm, I'm sure he was actually serious in saying that. He actually thought there was a spirit that kind of they had between the four of them that he personally recognized in the six of them. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it was kind of all pervading, really. But, I mean, I'm sorry to read that again. You, the, a huge piss take of the Maharishi and George, and uh, there's a whole great song on there about the uh, magical mystery boar, and um, they were <laughs> doing very bad Scouse accents and everything. Um, but it's funny, it's the Monty Python's, Monty Python's Flying Circus is a world apart, really, from anything beatly. Mm. It's a strange thing. You look, you look through it and Eric Idle's songs aren't rock and roll in the way that Bill Oddie's songs were. And they just don't overlap. They're kind of, they come together beautifully, I think, just because they don't share any territory, really. Mm. Apart, I mean, the Mon I, I agree about Magical Mystery Tour being a big influence because it was on, you know, any kind of colourful, freewheeling style of comedy, which is what they were doing. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's an incongruity, I think, of, of Python and uh, the Beatles together, as well as a kind of fitting hand in glove thing. I love that in that last, one of the last interviews that John gave to Andy Peebles, uh, mm. obviously they're discussing British things, Again, aren't they? That was one of the triggers really for me doing the book. When I, okay. I, I'd heard it before, it sort of stayed in the back of my mind and I kind of, I, you know, found it on YouTube and I just thought that was one of his last ever mm. spoken things, just enthusing about comedy, like an absolute geek, which is what I am. So that's really what another thing that drove me to bring this book out. Sorry, carry on. Well, because he, I was just going to say, because he mentions, obviously, he says, I'd rather have been in Monty Python because they're talking about mm. comedy. And I love the idea that he liked 40 Towers. Yeah. Um, obviously, the second series of 40 Towers was 79. So I imagine it was that that had been shown over there. Yeah. Or, or, or both, you know, I imagine he, he saw them both, but that, that was kind of an, a, a slightly current thing then. Well, it, um, 12 episodes was nothing to America. So they probably just showed the whole lot in like a week to him. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, interesting that he identified with Cleese. Of all of them, <laughs> uh, um, you know, there's, there's probably. Oh, Cleese is clearly, clearly the Lennon of. Uh, yeah. Of, of Monty Python. Let's get this straight. I think, you know, we've got the, the Cleese and Chapman are the Lennon and yeah. the Palin and Jones are the McCartney. And then Eric is George and poor old Terry Gilliam <laughs> is on the drums at the back. <laughs> I, I think that that's a, quite an accurate uh, analysis there, Jim. Um, okay. Well, moving on quite, quite nicely into what I th sort of came across to me is the heart of the book, which was the Ruttles, really. Um, I'm going to assume that the majority of the people that listen to this podcast are, are certainly aware of, of the Ruttles. But okay. um, if you could just go through how it kind of came about, how did uh, the initial kind of rumblings of the Ruttles kind of start? Well, this is it kind of ties into what I was saying about Flying Circus being completely unbeatly. When Eric splintered off and did his All Things Must Pass, which was the, the uh, Rutland Weekend Television. 
it suddenly became a great deal more Beatley because he had Neil Innes standing right next to him and rock and roll was suddenly part of the brew. And it was just, it, I mean, it was Neil Innes, really. Okay. Uh, all Eric Idle, so, sorry, this, I don't want to be too, too dismissive because Eric Idle created the Ruttles. Mm. But um, he, he himself, you know, agrees that the whole nucleus of it was that he had a sketch of a TV presenter being followed in the van and the van pulls away and he's still trying to present the show. And it didn't really matter what it was about. But Neil had come up with... Uh, it must, I must be enough. So it was a Beatley song and he thought he could be presenting it with a kind of a, a little piss take of Hard Day's Night. And that was all entirely Neil's idea and the two meshed together. Right. And Eric wrote it and, and called them the Ruttles, which Neil didn't ever like that, that name. And it all started from that. It started from Ruttle and Weekend Television. Um, but uh, technically it was Neil. And he'd done it before with the Bonzos. There's a, one of my favourite Bonzo songs is Fresh Wound which I think was recorded when the Beatles were still together, but it's a complete Beatles pastiche. I mean, there aren't many bands that do that, I think. I mean, I'm not talking Baron Knights here, you know, that's a different <laughs> kind of thing. This is just Neil creating a song that sounds like the Beatles did it, and then the, in the guitar break, he just sort of goes, oh, come on, George. And it's a very George Harrison guitar break. It's a wonderful song, Fresh Wound. So he was just... He loved the Beatles. This is the thing about Neil Innes. He absolutely was a fan of the Beatles, even though he was in this quirky... And obviously, again, this is more connections with the Bonzos being in Do Not Adjust Your Set with Eric Idle and everything going right back. But that the, you see them as sort of quirky jazzers kind of things, sort of esoteric Edwardian clothes and sousaphones and everything. But Neil was always a Beatle fan and was massively inspired by Lennon and McCartney songs all throughout his writing career. So it just kind of made sense that he came up with the whole idea of the Ruttles and then Eric called it the Ruttles and wrote the story from that point. And it was only because it was so big on Saturday Night Live that it really became what we know and the film was made. So the film itself, I think, is you know universally acknowledged as not only, you know, quite ahead of its time in, in certain respects. It's the start this is, of everything, really. Well, yeah, it, it is, you know, if you think things like Spinal Tap and, uh, you bad know, news, Bad News was, you know... Yeah. Brian Pern, to this day, they all kind of inhabit the Ruttles universe, as far as I'm concerned. Do you think that, so the key to its success has to be... For me, it's it's Neil's songs, really. You know, they're they're exemplary, they're they're wonderful, mm. they're, they're, they're timeless, really. Um... What do you think alongside that kind of came together to make that film such a success? It was the whole Python element, really, from the comedy point of view. And also, although originally it wouldn't have mattered so much, but the Saturday Night Live team coming together with them, that in itself, it didn't matter. If it, if it wasn't about the Beatles, if they'd picked, you know, if it was Shakespeare or James Bond or something else that they were spoofing, that amount of talent coming together would have made something special. Mm. But it just so happens that it was about, you know, the greatest entertainment act of all time. Mm. So, of course, it was always going to be great. Um, it's only sort of subsequently that you see how big that was. It was just these talented young people that Eric Idle had kind of, you know, um, taken some substances with in New York in the 70s, you know. There was just a lot of talent on the screen. And Eric Idle was absolutely uh, inspired when he wrote it. It was just one of those a brilliant piece of writing and it brilliantly directed and the, you know it was it was a, a dream project really I think for everyone on it I was lucky it was by pure well, not by pure coincidence um I was lucky to spend a bit of time with Joe McGrath uh, in the pub this is the thing I've been writing this book for so long now I mean I, I originally I started off I wrote a letter to Sir George Martin who was still around and I got a nice reply Say you know, say, saying that he wouldn't be interviewed, but that he wished me luck and that uh, you know that they were funny and everything. And also, as I say, I got to meet Joe McGrath, and he must have been in his late eighties. This was about twenty twelve, I would imagine. I spent right. an evening in the pub with him, just talking about all the Beatles films and all his oh, yeah. involvement with it all, and making basically inventing pop videos with them that was joe mcgraw behind the camera there mm. um and god bless him he's still around i hope mm. he's uh, okay with uh, all the situation at the moment um but his wife is petter button who was one of the chief 
costumiers and prop makers and one, one part of the design team for the Ruttles. So it, it turned into sort of a two-part night. Wow. And it was just, there was just talent in every stage. I mean, we, we just see it up there on the screen and take it for granted. And there's a few little fluffs here and there, but the verisimilitude of what they were capturing on screen as a piss take was just unprecedented and it can't really be better to this day. Obviously, George was, you know, heavily involved. You know, he's in it. You know, you can't get a bit more involved <laughs> than that. Um, do we know what John, Paul, Ringo thought of it? Were they positive? Were they offended? Were they what, you know? There's sort of little drips and drabs of, of stories that you hear. There was never any kind of great statement from anyone. Okay. But um, uh, they, they all got copies of it. Um, uh, Ringo loved it. Except, I think his line was that he thought it sad when they split up. I think <laughs> yeah. they get. I think they just kind of watched it in a, in a confused way that they, it was about them, which it mm. kind of was and wasn't. But they took it in a very personal. Well, of course, they took it in a personal way. It was them, mm. but but they did. They couldn't have that sort of uh, willing suspension of disbelief that the rest of us had. But John uh, reportedly loved it. He used to. He sort of sang cheese and onions to fans if they. Wow. You know, spotted him in the street and everything okay um and the only supposed problem for years and years just there's always this kind of idea i mean paul mccartney is one of the funniest men alive as far as i'm concerned and there's always this idea that paul it was a bit prudish about the ruttles but all that was was he actually had an album out at the time whenever it was 1976 and he was actually on the publicity tour and he got asked about the ruttles constantly and he just sort of got no comment about it. Okay. But Linda was a huge fan of the Rattles, apparently, and she kind of brought him round and oh, he nice. did say to both Eric and Neil that he thought it was... I mean, apart from, I think the, the main thing was just the horrible scene with uh, Eric playing Dirk McQuiffey, writing his song and everything. I think that did get to Paul. So he, you know, he did have a sense of humour lapse with that one. But um, I think he came round eventually. I don't think any of them really took against it. Good. That's that's reassuring. I think on a few levels to hear. Um, obviously, the scousers, you... you know what they're going to say. That's what they do. They are funny. Um, they like obviously, you were lucky enough, I gather, to spend some time with Neil Innes um, mm. while you were writing the book. Um, what was the main sense that you got from him about the Ruttles was it was it just of of, of warmth and being very proud of it do you, do, you, do you think he would have changed stuff what do you think was what was the overall impression that you got I think he quite rightly uh made a division between the Ruttles music and him as Ron Nasty and with the band and performing and the whole the film side of it and the kind of the the law he kind of he held the music aside, really. He didn't really... There's, it was only seldom that they entered into the world of the universe of the Ruttles, if you like. It was actually just about enjoying those wonderful songs. And that he was definitely positive about. And he played those songs, be it like Rattelot or with the whole band, thousands of times all around the world, around America, Australia, Britain, many, many times around and around because people loved it. Um, so he was very proud about that. But I think to the end, he was less happy about the way that everything had gone business-wise with the Ruttles, which I probably shouldn't get into too much because um, most of what you'll find in the book about it is from an actual uh, news report, which quotes yeah. both me and Eric Idle. But it sort of, it was, again, you know, comedy reflecting real life with the Sue Me, Sue You Blues and I don't think Neil ever really recovered from that. It's difficult when you're, when you're a comedian. Mm. I mean, if you, you could be a Beatle and have a sense of humour failure, mm. and you're a bloody Beatle. Mm. But if you're a comedian and you have a sense of humour failure, it's very difficult to recover from. It's a very much a, whoa, I thought I knew you, man, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah they, they, I don't think that ever went away, unfortunately. Mm. Moving on from the Ruttles, alas, we have to. We could do an hour on the Ruttles uh, just, mm. just on their own. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the 1980s. Um, mm. uh, it's interesting, something that I really got from the book that I, I, I wasn't aware of. I, I, I was born in 84, so I, I don't remember oh. the 80s that much, unfortunately. Um, is 
Spitting Image comes along. Now, mm. I don't know whether or not outside of the UK what impact Spitting Image had, but obviously it was a puppet-based satirical uh, comedy show, which was humongously successful at the time, mm. um, led to the careers of a lot of comic actors. And, of course, the majority of the sketches that are all on YouTube in the main about the Beatles at this time are quite mean-spirited and they're quite <laughs> nasty, aren't they? And they they kind of go for Paul quite a lot, yeah. um, which I, I, found, I found quite interesting. Why do you think suddenly... I mean... I, Okay, there was the eighties. Uh, weren't a good time for Beatles. Were, no, that's that, not, especially not, for one of them. It was a, <laughs> it was no time at all for one well, of them. But yeah, the, the remains. It was, it, and this is quite interesting because I was born in seventy eight, and I just didn't really notice the Beatles at all until I was in my mid teens, and actually that was when the anthology came out. And so to me, I kind of discovered the Beatles. With, it, when, with the anthology and with Free as a Bird and everything. And it was just in the middle of Britpop and all that crap. And it just, no, I'm not saying, Brit, you know, there's some great songs, yeah, yeah, but it, it kind of fitted, but it was like the greatest Britpop band. Yeah, you've got your Oasis and your Blair, but have you heard of this band here? They've just got all these new albums out and this TV show and stuff. And because the eight, I mean, I actually love uh, No More Lonely Nights and I could go on, we could do a whole hour and we all stand together, for God's sake. It's... That is, as I say in the book, it's, I don't like to kind of throw in too much personal authorial voice when I'm writing a book. That's, that's one of the things that drove me to write, start writing books in the first place, too much of people wittering on their own opinions. I don't buy books for authors' opinions. No. But I did allow myself to say in the book that for me, the litmus test of a Beatles fan is the Frogs Chorus. Uh, if they use that as as a kind of a stick rather than a, a, a carrot, then uh, I, I they they don't get uh, English tea around my house. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've wittered on. No, that's fine. We oh, enjoy 80s, wittering. The 80s. We were talking about the eighties, indeed. So um, they were kind of so fair game, weren't they? What do you think changed throughout the eighties that made this depiction of them? And you know, if you look at things like. Some of the light entertainment shows of the time, mm. you know, you would the get hairdos some... and the... yeah, it would all be a little bit, you know, demean, which did change. Ringo's mullet and and the yeah, ah, all kinds of awkwardness. It's just they were in their forties, and they were. I mean, they weren't naff really. I mean, George had uh, uh, got my mind set on you, mm. and obviously traveling Wilbur's, which is uh, again a whole other comedy aspect of the book. Um, so, looking back now as fans. They were never naff, but in the zeitgeist, they were, and I was just a kid, they were these old rockers, and it, it, it was their turn. It was that generation's turn to be kicked by the new generation mm. of sort of 80s comedians like Smith and Jones and, you know, Halem Pace and Spitting Image and uh, Radioactive. Um, so it took, it took, I mean, I, I really don't think we can downplay the importance of the anthology in creating the the Beatles church that we all mm. worship in today. Mm. It's not that in the early 90s people, that Paul wasn't, you know, one of the greatest performers out there and touring the world and everything. But the anthology really kind of acts as, as a, a tent pole that kind of, it, it, it just sort of brought, it made the Beatles cooler than they were, no, as cool as they were in the 60s again. And having done that once, I don't think anyone since has questioned the coolness of the Beatles. But in the 80s, John was dead, it was a different time, and they were briefly has-beens, and comedy loves a has-been. Mm. So I think that, that had a lot to do with it. So I'm, you know, the anthology is really my favourite Beatles album, because that's what got me into it. And the ukulele is, is the comedy instrument, and that's why a lot of musos uh, sneer at ukuleles in every possible context rather than just sneering at them in really bad adverts which is the right context for sneering at ukuleles <laughs> and where does the whole Beatles story end you know the end of three as the bird is is a little George Formby reference and the three of them sitting there in on the lawn playing ukuleles together and that's oh. and joking and that is what they you know and that is the last note really of the Beatles story we all sort of we all have to carry on, but uh, I like that it does end on that little sort of George Formby-ish silly note. Mm. So it, it, they told the story as straight as possible, but it's wonderful that that's kind of where it ends. I think. 
just to bring things up right up to date to kind of close, um, mm. you mentioned in the book, obviously, uh, uh, some of the more recent Beatle related films. Um, mm. And I, something, again, that I hadn't thought of until I, I read the book was there's quite a few kind of what ifs around recent Beatle uh, films, literature, etc. You've got mm. the Snodgrass, um, which is mm. about, if, obviously, which, which was a Sky TV production where if John had left the Beatles in 62, Beetle Bone, which is a, yep. a, a, a really excellent um, book of Beatle fiction. And of course, last year you had the multiplex destroying uh, film yes yesterday um yeah i which, couldn't not mention it you know it's, which uh, is well yeah well, uh, which is another kind of what if what uh, do, do you think that's where we're at at the moment in kind of beetle comedy lore is is this you know kind of playing around with the story a little bit well i mean i i like to be as comprehensive as possible anyway it's one thing that i have been kicked for in the past with my books that um my first book is, I'm sorry, I'll read that again. And I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. And a lot of people said, oh, you don't get onto I'm sorry, I haven't a clue until halfway through. And it's just like, this is the story. I'm just telling the story that is there. And with the Beatles, I always plan to sort of tell the full story up until, I mean, literally anything new coming in, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, I could just try and squeeze in there. Mm. So I'm really trying to make it as up to the minute as possible. But I think it's just part of, as I say, uh, what we have now, this Church of the Beatles, uh, is kind of what what generates these things, these what ifs and these these fantasies around the Beatles, because we're not going to get Paul and Ringo up there on digital or celluloid together. I mean, I really I was lured in by by yesterday. I was that cheeky flipping trailer. I really mm. thought that. What, I mean, why not? I mean, it was semi well it was apple approved and they both Paul and Ringo had their fingers in pies to do with yesterday. Apparently, Paul wanted to call it scrambled eggs, which, uh, you know, is, it would be much. So I thought if they had that level of involvement, then it was a shame not to have them cameo. Mm. That's really what I was watching. For. Mm. I, mean, I love Richard Curtis. Obviously, I did the Black Adder book, but uh, mm. I was there for the, for the Beatles. Even if James Corden had to be there, I was there for the Beatles cameo, you know, and it didn't happen. And that, and that was a big disappointment. But uh, one thing I haven't done in this book, actually, and I... And I, I I was questioning myself about it after because I do try and include as much info as I can, but I didn't really get into the whole situation of yesterday, the, the court case since, which is a whole different story, isn't it? Of the guy who claims that he invented the whole thing. Um, and I, I sort of just quickly mentioned the different hands. It's, but as you say, Beetlebone and uh, you know, all these things, it, it wasn't original enough to make a court case about really, just mm. because Richard Curtis did quite, you know, unusually for him, he's a lovely guy, I've met him, he's a wonderful person, but he just fancied the idea so much, he just threw everything out the window, wrote his own film, in a completely sort of, you know, quite selfish way, because mm. a lot of other people had already worked on it. But uh, I didn't really, I'd already dealt with a lot of kind of legal worries in the previous chapter, so I thought I'd just kind of leave that out. And I know that, a lot of people aren't huge fans of that film, but uh, if you really worship at the Church of the Beatles, then there's something in it. There's something in it in, for every for these people in all these people, including me. In um, uh, is it all you need is love? Is that the film? Uh, no, across the universe. Across, across the universe. universe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of these films have very low IMDb ratings. But then so did the older ones like, like Sergeant Pepper. And, and I just, there is a camp pleasure if you're a proper Beatles geek in revisiting these things more than once, I'm afraid. I, um, I think I might be quite alone. I didn't mind yesterday. I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was okay. I, lovely, I think lovely touches in there. Some, so yeah, some excellent, excellent touches. I think the performances were, were you know, were good. Um, I have to say that Robert Carlyle, I mean, spoiler alert, I'm, again, I'm assuming yeah. that mo most people have seen it that are listening to this podcast. It's 2020. Yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, Robert Carlyle as John was slightly, I don't know, I, I kind of, I knew it was coming because again, I, mm. I, I, unfortunately, I had seen a spoiler and I was kind of ready for an emotional impact and it, uh. it, it never quite, 
materialise, which is odd because Curtis's his stuff generally gets me. I'm 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 that person, you know. About time, his film about time. I don't know why, but that has a massive emotional effect on me. So <laughs> I, I um, I'm not ashamed to say. Um, uh, so I was kind of ready for for something there, but you, you, you're right. It never quite. It would have been great to have seen Paul walking a dog or something. Yeah, or, exactly. I was glad. Very glad to get that into the book. The mention of that because uh, it was gonna it was gonna be far more uh, wanky fan service is what a lot of people would call it. But uh, you know, if you're a wanky fan, then you want to be served. I, I find. Uh, so yeah, maybe maybe on the I don't know. Is there a DVD? I'm sure Paul didn't turn up for that. They could CG him in. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, there is. Uh, actually, one thing I will say. One thing I was yeah. gonna say. All this stuff, whether you think it's crap, whether you don't, at least part of all of this stuff is not so far a remake of yellow submarine so no matter what happens beetle style i've always got that little kind of touchstone of all right robert zemeckis isn't going to remake a, a kind of 3d cg yellow submarine and i'm so glad about that that was close wasn't it at one point that was it really looked like it i mean I, you know Peter Serafinovich was involved, which is good as far as I'm concerned. But my position then and now is please, please, please make a sequel. Do something. Use the music. Use those wonderful four Beatle characters uh, and make a sequel to Yellow Submarine. Do something else. I know other people have had this idea online. There's somebody I saw online who was talking about this and sort of claiming he was trying to get it made and claiming that it was all his idea. And it's just like, no, I think we've all thought of possible sequels to Yellow Submarine. Mm. But that's what Zemeckis should have been throwing his millions of, of Disney bucks at, really, uh, rather than just, I mean, how can you remake Yellow Submarine? It's probably the most incredible art animation of all time. It's there. So uh, I, I, I'm very happy to see more creations and fantasies being woven around the Beatles universe as, you know, there's very little real Beatle power left on the planet, I'm afraid. Uh, so we've got to just keep on celebrating them in, in these different ways. And, and obviously we have done that a lot and that's why I was so uh, amazed to find this, this virgin snow in Beatleology because, um, yeah, there's a lot out there, but uh, this is a new story. Yes, it certainly is a new story. It's one that I think, uh, yeah, um, I'm so glad that you've told. Um, Gem, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, this has been a really, really fascinating hour of chat. We could go on, but, you yeah. know, um, time is against us, unfortunately. Well, um, uh, yeah, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. No, cheers, I'm... Joe. It's been a, thank you for doing this and for running the podcast and everything. It's, it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's a brilliant little corner of, of Beatleology that, that you've got there. You're the Beatles books guy. So, uh, and I want to say to anyone else listening, your Beatles books are fantastic. And I will get round to reading them. <laughs> I think that's as good as way as any to end it. Jim, thanks, thanks so much for your time. Cheers, Joe.